0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help
1: your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life.
2: We are Irish Life.
0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, November 11th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be teasing out if this is likely to be a bumper Christmas for Irish retailers and looking at the latest developments in the IBRC inquiry. And it's with IBRC that we'll start. We have a continuing controversy around the Commission of Investigation into certain loan transactions. Will Judge Brian Cregan ever get to produce his report? Joining me in studio is former IBRC Chairman Alan Dukes and Irish Times Economic Editor Arthur Beasley. Arthur Beasley, we'll start with you. Let's put this controversy into context first. When did it all begin?
3: Well, Ciarán, it's it's been a long and winding road which takes us right back to uh, March of 2012, which was when a company owned by Dennis O'Brien called Millington bought the SightServe company from IBRC for 45.4 million Euro. Now, at the time, there was a pretty large debt write down by IBRC at that time, It was in the order of 119 million euro. And the next month, the uh, unsuccessful underbidder Altrad said it had been prepared to pay 60 million for Sightseer, which was uh, more than uh, Dennis O'Brien was willing to pay. Now, that kind of that was the that was the opening sequence, if you like. And uh, what happened then was that a controversy erupted. Uh, Last April, uh, when Catherine Murphy, who's an independent TD, uh, retrieved documents under the FOI Act, which revealed a level of official concern over the deal. And later on in that month, the government moved to quell the storm by announcing a review of deals. Then there were reports in newspapers about a spike in trading in Sideserved shares before the sale. And ultimately, the government moved in June to establish a commission of inquiry into the affair. And that leads us to events over the weekend, when it transpired that the judge who was appointed to chair the commission, Brian Cregan transpired that he had written to the Taoiseach on Friday to say that uh, he wasn't able to uh, proceed with the inquiry as a result of concerns over the confidentiality of private banking records uh, and also over the fact that these banking records were uh, privileged they had had legal privilege and there it lies essentially the government uh, has indicated it may introduce emergency legislation to try and get over uh, This particular difficulty, but it now transpires that the inquiry, uh, assuming it can properly get underway. And that's still in in some doubt, it seems to me, uh, that uh, this matter could fester for, you know, I mean, for, for many years to come.
0: A suggestion, possibly five to eight years.
3: Uh, That's certainly doing the rounds. Uh, We're certainly in a scenario where the government, having said that when it was establishing the inquiry last June, that the whole business would be done and dusted by the end of this year. We're certainly in a a scenario where that's, that's absolutely not going to be the case. And it appears it won't be done next year or the year after or the year after that.
0: Right. Okay. But this is something that can go on uh, for years, unlike the banking inquiry, for example, which falls if we have a general election. If we have a general election, in this case, it doesn't matter. It's simply the commission uh, can continue with its work.
3: Yeah, but there's an important an important point here because um, the the act under which the commission was established is a piece of uh, 2004 legislation championed by the then justice minister Michael McDowell, uh, and the objective in the by establishing this inquiry route, essentially a a, a judge-led inquiry, which which would carry out its business behind closed doors until such time as it was ready with a the report. The, 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 the objective was to have speedy inquiries at lower cost. And this was against the backdrop of there being hugely uh, expensive and hugely time consuming tribunals of inquiry. This was supposed to be uh, more efficient, cheaper and swifter. Right, Alan Dukes, you were chairman of IBRC at the time of its
0: liquidation, and, and this deal with SiteServe happened on your watch. Um, how have we ended up in this mess?
2: Arthur has uh, kind of laid out the, 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 the process that brought us here. But I think it should be pointed out, and I think Arthur will remember this, that on a, an RTE primetime programme, the person whom we had appointed to be an independent invigilator of the SiteServe mm. process Um, on behalf of the bank, William Hobbs, explained all of the details of the deal at some length. As far as I can see, he might as well never have said a word because the people who raised these questions, including those in the Department of Finance, seem not to have paid a blind bit of notice to what he said. Um, I have to say, of course, uh, ceremonially in a way, that I will, of course, cooperate fully uh, with the Tribunal but I have to make that point about the site serve uh, issue which is where this started Do you stand over that deal? I do I stand over, over it uh, William Hobbs uh, in that programme publicly uh, set out all of the main considerations he was appointed by the bank to be an independent person to act for the bank to make sure that the interests of the bank in the sale of that company uh, were, were properly safeguarded and at the end of the day um, his conclusion was, and I use almost his very words: when the final deal was put together, he said the choice we had to make was that it was that deal or nothing. Now I don't know how much more uh, the questioners need to know about that. There isn't much more to find out, in fact, uh, about the circumstances of. of what of about that all deal. Trads'
0: claim that he was prepared to pay sixty million for there? Because Dennis O'Brien paid just over forty-five. That's it?
2: right. Yes, and that was dealt with at some length. Um, there were people who did not participate fully according to the rules of the process that had been set out. Uh, People have raised, in fact, we saw that there there were offers that on the face of it looked that they might get the bank a bit more money uh, and it was felt that if the bank dealt with those people, the the Millington uh, offer would be taken off the table, the other offers would have been chipped down and the bank would have come out with less money than it actually did. Um, There were questions about why a number of possible trade buyers were left out of the process. That was quite a deliberate decision because it was felt that a number of people would enter into the process, get a lot of information about the company, not make an offer and go away and use that information to compete against the company, which already was in uh, some serious difficulty at the time. As I've said, all of those issues have been set out. Um, by that independent person in public. Now, I, I don't know what else uh, can be said to, to to convince people that a reasonable commercial judgment was made at the time. It is certainly clear that had the bank chosen the route of putting in a receiver uh, or putting a liquidator into the company, that the return would have been less uh, than, than we actually got. Yes, uh, there was a huge write-down on that, those were the circumstances of the market at the time. We're talking about 2012. That was long before there was an upturn in, in the market, which didn't happen until into the spring of 2013. But, I mean, that the continuing debate about that uh, and the refusal of people to accept any of those explanations, which have been made public, uh, is what led to, to this particular uh, commission of Investigation. Okay. Being well, we have the Commission
0: of Investigation. now. Yeah. Uh, you were a senior uh, officer at IBRC at the time that this deal uh, happened. So you're a person of interest mm-hmm. um, to this Yeah,
2: let me make just one other commission. point um, uh, because I think this is interesting. Arthur has referred to the fact that the Department of Finance expressed reservations about this, which is true. Um, and we got to the point where in July of 2012, um, I had a meeting with, with the Minister. I explained all of the circumstances to the Minister and he mm-hmm. accepted my explanation the Department of Finance officials apparently still continued to have problems. Now, I I don't know whether they feel they can dispense with the services of the Minister or a decision of the Minister, uh, but the Minister accepted it at the time. Um, The current Secretary-General of the Department of Finance, uh, in in evidence that he gave to the Public Accounts Committee on the 15th of May last, uh, spoke about this. And he said that his reservation... Uh, was about the fact that another, that the bank itself did not supervise, did not carry out the sale of the shares of the company. And I think it's rather concerning that the Secretary-General of the Department of Finance is concerned at the fact that the bank did not sell shares, that it didn't own itself. The bank at that time did not own the shares of the company. So, but you had control of the loans? Oh, we had control of the loans. The bank was a creditor of the company. It wasn't the owner of the shares. And unless and until it put it in a receiver or, or, or a liquidator, it could not sell the shares of the company. And I think, you know, the Department of Finance needs to get some commercial reality in dealing with these things. And I've no doubt that some other issues of this kind will be discussed during the course of the work uh, of the Commission of Investigation. Alright,
0: well, so we have this Commission of Investigation. You were a Senior Officer of IBRC at the time. You're a person of
2: interest to the investigation. What's been your level of contact with them to date? Um, I'm quite satisfied with the level of contact uh, I have with the the Commission of Investigation so far. Um, When did they first contact you? We've been exchanging uh, correspondence since um, late August. Um, The judge convened us, he requested us to come to a meeting with him uh, at the end of August to talk about process. Uh, He explained, incidentally, that, you know, his appointment came a good deal later than the decision to set up the commission and that he hadn't been able to start work until sometime in August because he had court cases to write up uh, before he could start work. Uh, and he invited us to come and talk to him about process. And sorry, when you say, oh, you know, so do you mean exactly? I mean, I mean, well, that meeting was attended by myself, uh, Aidan Eames, who was also a director on the board and one of Aidan's staff from his, uh, from his law firm. Um... The judge explained to us what the process was and what his thinking uh, was at that stage. Um, We said to him that our central concern was that we would have full and unrestricted access to the documentation uh, about the uh, transactions that were to be looked at and he told us that there was um, an issue that had arisen in that at that time the special liquidators had said to him that they regarded all of the documentation as confidential and they regarded um, parts of the document as being subject to legal privilege. Um, That created a problem for him, because if the documentation was confidential, and if he concluded that it was indeed confidential, then he couldn't show it to us. And that meant that the work of the Commission could not take place, because he accepted the point that we made, that unless we had full and unrestricted access to the documentation, um, our, our, our right to natural justice and fair procedure uh, could not be granted. I said to him that uh, that seemed to me to be a rather Kafkaesque situation, um, and I made the point to him that the, the directors of the bank, and I gather were still legally directors until were discharged, the directors of the bank um, were people who were on the other side of the confidential arrangements that were made in the case of these transactions. Uh, so that it would be appropriate, um, I think, although I didn't use this phrase at the time, it would be appropriate to regard us as being inside, if you like, the confidentiality bubble, because we were involved in in making the laws, so in revealing the papers to us, they were not being revealed to any new party who hadn't been party to to the arrangements. Um, He accepted that that was a legitimate view, Uh, but he didn't quite know at the time what he could do about it. It subsequently emerged, uh, and we had made some submissions to him on that basis in writing. There were other issues about the interpretation of the terms of reference uh, that we raised with him. Um, I raised in particular uh, the fact that the terms of reference refer to Section 3 of the IBRC Act 2013, which was the act that provided for the liquidation, uh, it seemed to me that that was an entirely inappropriate reference because, of course, the actions that are being looked at happened between 2009 and February 2013. And my understanding is he has taken up that point. Uh, personally, I think that that was a piece of kind of boilerplate drafting uh, by whoever drafted the the, the, the terms of reference. Um, it's maybe not a major point, but I think... It kind of you made the point indicates a certain state of mind. But it subsequently emerged then that the Department of Finance was also claiming that uh, some parts of its documentation uh, were confidential and also that some parts of it were subject to, to legal privilege. So that put them in the same place, if you like, as the special a liquidators. Uh, and sorry, you've made the point in the statement released earlier this week about
0: this whole matter, you've made the point that you don't even know which loans are being investigated, other than in the Siteserve deal, uh, which loans involving IBRC are currently... No, in fact, uh,
2: Judge Cregan made the point was at the end of August that at that point he hadn't yet got the list of the transactions in question from the special liquidators. Um, and he said that in any case, the list was also part of the documentation that they regarded as confidential. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I feel a bit like a, a pupil going into an exam when I don't know what was on the course.
0: Yeah. Arthur, isn't it extraordinary that... Um the government, which set up this inquiry, um, the Department of Finance effectively set up this inquiry, if you like, uh, this Commission of Investigation, um, that they subsequently decided after uh, setting up this commission that they couldn't um, share any some, some of the documentation because
3: it was uh, it, it was confidential and subject to legal privilege. Well, I mean, the, the the whole thing really is 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 extraordinary because I mean, when you on the face of it, when you read with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of the knowledge that the judge has now you know expressed these concern, relayed his concern to the Taoiseach, uh, when you when you look at the Commission of, of of inquiries Act of 2004, on the face of it, um, it looks as if this were, this situation was going to be entirely clear from the from, from the outset because by the letter of the act. Um, the, the judge doesn't have the power to compel the production of any information deemed deemed confidential or privileged. He can make a determination that privilege or confidentiality does not properly acquire to a certain I, 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 to a certain category of information. But it's not open to the judge by the letter of the act to say yes, I accept the confidentiality applies there, but I'm going to override it. And, you know, in an inquiry of this nature, which delves into uh, details which are at the very essence of banking confidentiality, in other words, uh, the whole question of uh, interest rates on certain loans, the whole question of write-downs, all of which was set out in the terms of reference for the inquiry, it seems to me that we were always going to be in the realm of data which was regarded as confidential. So the question that has been raised politically is... Uh, how come this wasn't foreseen? Now I take it that there is an argument that look at you know that it, it must be open that there's a public interest here and that it must be open to the, the to the judge in this scenario to uh, to reflect those concerns and to proceed. But the judge has decided otherwise, and that's the the quandary we're we're, we're all in now. And now we're the judge read.
2: Cregan has made the point that in the courts it is open to the High Court, for example, uh, to say that yes there is a right to confidentiality on the other hand there is a public interest to be served here and the High Court can decide where the boundary between the two lies the point he's making in relation to this commission of investigation is that as chairman of the commission of investigation he does not specifically have the powers
3: uh, of a judge of the High Court which arises from the fact that he is sitting yeah. in the in the inquiry room and not on the bench yes, down at the yeah, four courts? yeah, nor does he have the power to go
2: to the court, to ask the court to make a ruling about this. So from that point of view, um, he snookered in terms of making that kind of balancing judgment. Which is why I come back to the point of, of, if you like, arguing the logic of looking at who is within this confidentiality bubble. And on any rational interpretation, that must include the directors of the bank, who are the ones who are in charge of the bank when these... Uh, transactions took place. Now, I I don't know if there's anything in in the act or in the terms of reference that allows the judge to make that decision. But unless and until uh, that can be done, it seems to me that the thing comes to a full stop. But
0: just in terms of the way the commission came about, I mean, do you accept there is a public disquiet about how IBRC went about its work at the time and that there, there were significant write-offs and people have concerns about that and that we, we do actually need a commission of investigation to look at this?
2: Well, frankly, I, I have to say it's not up to me to decide that and if the government decides that we need a commission of investigation, I'll go along with that. However, I have to say that the the period we're looking at is what happened between the nationalisation of the bank in 2009, January 2009, and February 2013. Um, It's interesting to note, incidentally, that when the bank was liquidated, the minister in the Dáil said this had nothing to do with the way the board or the management of the bank carried out their business. It was in order to get out from under the the burden of the promissory note and so on. Um, But what did people expect was going to happen in that period? We were given a mandate to recover as much as possible from the distressed assets of the bank. Anglo-Irish Bank was more distressed than the others because it was relatively far more involved in property lending. It was almost a monoline bank compared to the others which had large uh, businesses in in, in other areas. So it was dealing with um, the realisation of distressed assets in a very distressed sector. So there were always going to be write-downs, the biggest write-down we took was of the transfer of loans to NAMA, where a haircut of around 60% was applied to the loans that the bank uh, transferred. Now, of course, it was expected that the ones that were left with the bank were of better quality than the ones we, we transferred to NAMA. And indeed, that proved to be the case. In most cases, the write-downs were a lot less than, than, than the 60% that applied on the NAMA ones. But it was very clear. Uh, that there was going to there were going to be write downs, the government asked all of the banks in September of 2010. Um, the late Brian Lennon at that time was very keen to have a figure as to what this whole banking catastrophe was going to cost us. Uh, personally, I have to say I thought that that was rather a, an artificial kind of a judgment to make, uh, but on the basis of an agreed set of assumptions we reckoned that um, the cost on Anglo before INBS was folded into it would be somewhere between 25 and 34 billion euro. Uh, In fact, I think it will have come out in the lower end of that scale, plus then the bit that's attributable to INBS. So that everybody in the system, um, and I think the public knew, that there were going to be very substantial losses on the loans that the banks were setting out to realise. In addition to that in September of 2010 um, and it was confirmed by January of the following year we were told that government policy was that we had to wind down um, IBRC within 10 years that is it had to be wound out by 2020 and uh, it fell to me in fact at the time uh, to go to a meeting with representative of the Department of Finance the NTMA uh, I think some NAMA people were there too. Well, certainly, Finance and NTMA um, to propose to them a schedule of disposals, um, which I did. Um, and I you said, thought we wound up sooner, didn't you? Um, yeah, I said to them at the time that for a slightly higher execution mm. risk, we could probably do it a bit faster. And they said to me, "No, please don't propose that." And I think it was rationally because they didn't want to be tied in front of the European Commission to reschedule that that might not work. In 2012, in November of 2012, we had concluded uh, on the basis of progress we had made by then that we could wind it up by 2018. We informed a senior official of the Department of Finance of that fact and she replied, yes, that that was perfectly in keeping with the Minister's objectives. Um, Mike Ainsley uh, told me at about that same time that he felt uh, we could do it by 2016. Um, But by the time the bank was liquidated, Mike and I hadn't had the time to sit down and go in detail into what would be required to do that. I'm sure you... So there were always, it was always the expectation that there would be substantial losses, write-downs in not only in, in, in IBRC, okay. but in well, the Okay, banks I suppose banks my also. point
0: is that we have this commission of investigation. It's investigating a lot of deals that took place on, on your watch. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that you executed them personally, but you I were chairman of, of the bank at that time. So, you know, naturally questions are being raised about uh, how you and Mike Ainsley and others yeah. ran the bank at that time. You guard your reputation very closely. I mean, does it rankle with you um, that we're having this commission of investigation?
2: Of course it does. Uh, my integrity and that of other members of the board is being impugned. Um, I can see that that, that there, there are questions. Um, it's a matter of judgment as to whether at a given moment uh, a particular transaction was carried out in a commercially sound way. Um, one of the transactions in particular, and I don't know whether this is in the list or not, uh, would be the sale of the American loan book, Um and had this had is the matter that came up with the banking inquiry. Oh yes, it did. Yeah, um, it, it had. We had realised in um, in the latter part of 2010 that things were moving in the US market and that there might be opportunities to dispose of the book, and it made sense anyway to close down the American operation of the bank. So we began preparing, uh, you know, to, to, to sell the loans. The Department of Finance was anxious that we should do that. Um, the department said to us that they, their preferred procedure, was to bundle the loans, groups of the loans, into portfolios, uh, and to sell them in that way. Um, we said, "Well, we we thought we could get a better result by selling the loans and the assets separately," but the department said they wanted it done on the portfolio basis, and they justified that perfectly reasonably on the basis that uh, they needed to get to a point where we would have a a substantial cash inflow so that we could reduce uh, the reliance of IBRC on emergency liquidity assistance. And we had been up as far as 42 billion uh, at various times. And that was a perfectly legitimate objective. Um, And we did the sale that way. Uh, We got what I think was a a reasonable result from it. About a billion dollars' worth of assets fell out of that because there was not agreement from the borrowers to to the sale and they were subsequently sold separately and in fact the return that we got from that group sold separately was better overall than the return that we had got from the portfolios so i mean you could say that the portfolio sale process of the american loans uh, was not perhaps the most commercially sensible way of doing it which would be a justifiable comment to make. But there were other considerations, like mm, pulling yeah. down ELA, which were valid uh, and perfectly in keeping with the overall objectives of the government at the time. So, yes, people can criticise that deal. We we could have made more money out of it, but there were other factors to be taken into account.
0: Have you taken legal advice in relation to your interaction with the Commission? Uh,
2: we are being legally advised by by AIM um, solicitors, and Aidan was a member of the board. He has taken care to be separately, legally represented himself so that there isn't a, a conflict there. Uh, but I would hope that we can go through this without having you know, squads of heavy legal hitters coming into it. Um, that's still my hope. Um, and that was certainly the intention of the 2004 Act, that we could have examinations of this kind carried out without people getting all lawyered up and taking forever. Uh, that prospect seems to be receding into the distance at this point.
0: Yeah, one of the suggestions, I suppose, around this, one of the reasons why this is a controversy is because Dennis O'Brien is involved. He's a very wealthy businessman. Obviously, he's had connections with Fine Gael uh, in the past. You're a former Fine Gael uh, minister for finance. Did you know Dennis O'Brien personally before uh, he took over as IBRC chairman? And he was one of the biggest debtors uh, with IBRC at the time.
2: I had met Dennis O'Brien probably two or three times before that. Um... I can remember two meetings that I had with him specifically. Uh, one when I actually launched his Digicel service when I was Minister for Transport, Energy and Communications. And the next time I met him was uh, when he came to my office still in that ministry. And I informed him that I was about to fine him a million pounds because they had been late uh, on the targeted rollout of the is these of these services. Um And before he left, I said, By the way, if you 're late next month i 'll have to find you another million pounds um and I think after that, I probably met him once in a corridor in the bank okay just oh, so you only met him once while you were chairman of i b r c yeah and i didn 't even have a conversation with him. We said hello to each other. he was on his way into a meeting, and I was on my way out to some other meeting okay and and since since so the liquidation sense.
0: no I haven't it seen sense. it Okay, Arthur coming back to you I mean we are where we are to use that horrible phrase um in terms of the commission's work and, and the judges raised these concerns around confidentiality and legal privilege and the time frame and so on. How are we going to get ourselves out of this mess?
3: Well, uh, I think procedurally, I think the situation is that the uh, we uh, the uh, judge's interim report uh, is uh, essentially awaited. It's only when that report is produced in its final dra- draft form there may, there may be drafts. Well, we have a related, draft but, form it, yeah, it, but it's, it's only yeah. it's only when it's produced in its the interim report is produced in its final stage. And the government will then decide what exactly it's going to do. Now, one suggestion was, was that it was going to change the status of the inquiry, essentially to turn it into a, a tribunal that appears to have been uh, ruled out. So I think we are in the realm of uh, emergency legislation. Um, but uh, the problem remains is that this is still going to go on for uh, a very, very long time. And the surf transaction is one among... Thirty-eight transactions, 38. Um, which, which fall to be uh, investigated by the commission. So, I mean, it's a it's got to be a very long time. Now, I mean, one doesn't know. I mean, might we find ourselves in a situation where, as the judge goes? through through the cases transaction by transaction would it be open to the judge to put out uh, a series of interim reports all of which would be would would stand and then you get a final report summing the whole thing up maybe that's an option Uh, but uh, you know on the face of it right now uh, it's it's going to be a very very long time before there's any clarity
0: Alan Jukes given your interaction with the commission have you been given any sense of time frames here or how they're going to what they're going to do to resolve this current impasse um
2: my impression is that it could take quite some time. That's about all I can say. I have to say, as far as the origin of it is concerned, um, the the side thing, it seems to me, uh, has been... It's at the point now where almost no matter what is said about it, um, people will continue to to grumble about it. Uh, My belief is that we have here um, a situation where a very populist campaign that started off because people object to water charges. They found that a Dennis O'Brien company was involved in this. And Dennis O'Brien is persona non grata to a good many people in the political system, so this was a good hook on which to hang a piece of agitation. Uh, And it has got legs from there, I think, partly assisted by the Department of Finance releasing information in response to FOI requests without any context. Uh, and I think that has, that has blown the thing up uh, to where it is okay, now. OK,
0: but just to be clear, you're absolutely, definitively, 100% comfortable that everything uh, in relation to the site-serve deal was proper and, and above board. You, you've no concerns that perhaps something, you know, perhaps you haven't been given a piece of information or you haven't been told about a certain conversation or well, no, you haven't I mean, seen a certain I, document or something like I've that, been, which might I shed mean, a different
2: light on it. I've been through this at the time the decision was made in the bank um, and we weren't at all happy uh, about the outcome in the bank, um, and there were a number of aspects uh, of the of the final transaction uh, that caused us some indigestion. Not the least of which was, you know, a payment of five million uh, to shareholders. Uh, but as William Hobbs pointed out, and as he said in public, you know, at the end of the day, it was that deal or nothing. Uh, and I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that had we decided not to take that deal, there would have been a serious risk that the bank would have come out with an even worse result afterwards. Now, and that's, that's a commercial judgment that was made at the time. I can't put my hand on my heart and say that absolutely no better deal could have been achieved. But our judgment at the time was in all the circumstances and taking account of the whole process that had been gone through we didn't want to take the risk of coming out with nothing rather than the results that we got.
0: Arthur, I mean, there is public disquiet out there and I, I think the government bowed to pressure by setting up this uh, investigation. It was under a lot of pressure in the doll at the time with various uh, questions and FOI requests and so forth. But at the end of the day, what is this going to achieve? Because none of the deals, surely none of those deals that have already gone through, that are already legal, none of them can be unpicked regardless of... of whatever the judge discovers in terms of whether we could have got a better deal or not for them.
3: That, uh, that seems to be a, a, exactly right. I'd be, I'd be astonished if uh, any findings were to come out that would result in an in unpicking a of the deal. That's not the way uh, these deals work. I mean, the, these deals are done deals, essentially. I mean, the judge will make whatever findings he ultimately makes um, but we—I mean—it's still unclear uh, as to the extent of the information the judge will be even able to put out in his final conclusions, uh, as a result of these concerns over confidentiality and privilege. And could we potentially be opening a door to legal challenges down the road? I, th- I think I think that's a—I think that's a—that's a, a key consideration even at this point. That he, you know it seems to me that even where the even where the judge I think the judge has even said it, that he, where were he to have said look at confidentiality may apply here but I'm overriding that confidentiality well then that uh, the commission would have been exposing itself to legal challenge uh, in the first instance and you were dealing here with uh, business people you were dealing here with commercial entities who have the resources to mount legal challenge. This legislation was used in the past in respect of child abuse a whole lot of other things uh, not necessarily in the, in the commercial realm as we have here so the access to courts in those other cases is not quite the same as it is in the commercial world where you have uh, corporations and business people who have the resources Alan Jukes, just come back to you, do you have any regrets about taking on the role as chairman of IBRC?
2: No, personally I, I found it fascinating I think we were able to do something worthwhile. Um, really? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think had given the fact that the government produced the guarantee for the banks in two thousand eight, and within, that, but it was that liquidated from under you by by the government. It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was liquidated to get out from under the, the promissory note repayments. Um, I have to say that, uh, against the background of you know the situation created by the bank guarantee. I think uh, the Department of Finance and the NTMA handled the macro thing very well. Uh, they, I think they did a good job on negotiating, you know, progressively better deals on, on the bailout funds. Uh, I think they did that extremely well in the context of a eurozone that fumbled appallingly all the way through and is still fumbling. But you know, given that background. I think they did a very good job at the macro level. At the micro level, uh, I think they, they, they simply didn't recognise that they didn't have enough um, information really to, 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 to supervise the things the way they thought they did. I felt they could have taken a different view um, and had a more collegiate approach to how we would sort out these problems. Um, but that's water under the bridge. I think the current situation... Um, will make it, will certainly give people pause uh, if in the future they're asked to undertake uh, any kind of operation of this kind on behalf of the state, uh, because they'd be very wary uh, of running the risk of getting kicked around from pillar to post um, in response to the kind of populism that's been said about this. me make one final point. The government seems to have thrown kind of the kitchen sink into the terms of reference of the Commission, because it's going to look at the processes in the bank, ask whether they were fit for purpose uh, and so on. This is against a background where um, the central bank uh, was reinventing the whole regulatory system which kept changing and they they did, Matthew Elderfield in particular I think did an extremely good job uh, which is still going on. Um, the bank was vigilated by Grant Thornton who were monitoring trustees on behalf of the European Commission to make sure we didn't break any state aid rules. And the Department of Finance uh, was there at all times uh, getting far more information than it has pretended to have got. So, in fact, the processes of the bank um, and the regulatory framework within which the board and the bank worked uh, were subject to serious invigilation all the way through. Um, And I think, you know, putting that into the terms of reference of this commission uh, is probably a move by the government to try to avert any possible um, criticism down the road for having forgotten something. But it looks like it's throwing the kitchen sink into this as well as everything else.
0: Arthur, uh, final word to you. Um, The liquidation of IBRC was supposed to put that whole episode, sorry episode involving Anglo and Irish Nationwide and and the collapse of the banks and so on, to put it all behind us. And yet here we are almost three years on, it still hangs over this government.
3: Well, I mean, this is—I mean, the—I the, mean, the, the fundamental point is that this is the outwork of uh, w- w- what went on in Anglo Irish Bank. I mean, IBRC is the is the successor uh, name to Anglo Irish Bank, but all of this started out with Anglo. Anglo proved to be the most toxic financial institution in a toxic financial system. Uh, it incurred the largest losses. Most of those losses will never be recouped by the state, and uh, on and on it goes. And indeed, David Drumm is, uh, is awaiting his fate uh, in the United States. He is. And, uh, you know, that, that's something which, again, is going to take uh, some considerable time uh, to resolve itself. And it seems to me that we'll be uh, dealing with this story for a good many years to come.
2: At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you with our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees
1: and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on
2: 01704 1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014
0: we we'll move now to the somewhat lighter topic of retail sales. After nearly seven years of austerity, there are encouraging signs of a rebound in sales. So will this be a bumper Christmas for Irish retailers? Joining me in the studio to tease out this issue are Connor Pope of the Irish Times and David Fitzsimons of Retail Excellence Ireland. Connor, we might start with you. What should we expect from Christmas sales this year?
4: Well, I think the short answer to your question is yes, it's going to be a bumper Christmas for retailers. I think all of the straws in the wind have been blowing in that direction and all the retailers are anticipating consumers are going to start spending money again in serious numbers this year. Now that's fueled by a number of different things. Obviously consumer sentiment is on the rise and has been on the rise for well over 12 months and it took a while to trickle down into the actual economy but now people are more comfortable spending money. So it's only
0: even, recently that it's begun to show itself in the CSO figures.
4: It has yeah but I think it, it, it's be, it was a slow burning thing and I think people started to feel slightly better about themselves towards the tail end of last year and then over the course over the first part of this year it started to actually impact on the figures and people started to actually believe the stories they were being told by government. I think prior to that people were a little bit sceptical about all the talk of recovery so that's one element. People are, are growing more confident and confident consumers spend money and that's been well documented over many many years. So people are now more optimistic, they're more likely to spend money, they're more likely to spend money on their credit cards and they're more likely to invest in things in, in, in the longer term. So that's that's the picture that that we're looking at and I think if you look at, at all the, kind of the, the predictions that retailers are making and indeed some of the the cold hard facts that that are coming out they're suggesting double double digit spending growth Visa Europe published these, these monthly figures in which they report how much consumers are spending on both their credit and their debit cards and they're suggesting that in October, the spending was up 6.5%. It was up in September and it's going to be up in November. So, you know, from a retail perspective and probably from a consumer perspective and from the economy at, 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 on a whole, things are looking good.
0: And I've seen a figure of 4 billion mentioned countrywide for Christmas sales this year, which I think would be up about, what, 3, 3.5% thereabouts?
4: That's correct. And I mean, and Irish consumers are set to spend more than 600 euros In December, than they would spend in any other month of the year. So we haven't returned to the kind of halcyon days of of 2005, 2006, when consumers, frankly, lost the run of themselves and they were just spending like there was no tomorrow. And it turned out there was no tomorrow for many people. Mm. But the other thing that's driving it, it, it's not... Because the thing that's puzzled me a lot is for an awful lot of consumers, they haven't seen any real gains in their personal income or their disposable income over recent times. Because, you know, there is... Tax cuts coming down the tracks, but they won't take effect until next year. Companies have been very slow to to reintroduce the the, the wage cuts or, or to restore the wage cuts that they, they they imposed several years ago. So for many people, they, their their circumstances haven't changed at all. They're still earning exactly the same as they were two or three years ago. So what's coming into what's coming to play? There's confidence, but of course we've also seen the numbers of people who are unemployed shrink dramatically. And when you see uh, un- unemployment rates from fo- falling from over 14% to, less than, uh, to well, well below 10%, that's going to have a significant impact on the economy as a whole. David, Retail
0: Excellence Ireland, I think you represent more than 1,100 retailers. Um, so just you know, from your work with those retailers, is this a Dublin phenomenon, this bounce in sales, or is it countrywide?
1: It's countrywide. Obviously, it, it's tiered. There's kind of three economies. There's the Dublin evening economy, which is incredibly robust. I stay in hotels and restaurants, and they're all full. Dublin daytime economy, which is doing reasonably well, and then the rest of Ireland, which is it's doing okay. It's it's experiencing growth, but not at the same level levels as. The Dublin Evening Economy. So, yeah, like Conor, we'd be we'd be bullish. We we um, we collate data for about three and a half thousand stores every quarter, and uh, we saw quarter three just past being the the busiest quarter I- since 2007, and um, which is great. And um, we are seeing enhanced growth amongst on trend brands rather than others. So, if you look at the Tigers or the Skechers or Pandora's or Nando's or whatnot, the H and M's, thesers, they're all. Um, on trend, they're very focused on customers' needs. The customers really engage with those brands, so those kind of guys are seeing exponential growth. Whereas maybe the more traditional department store down the country mightn't be enjoying the same levels of, of demand. Uh, and Connor, which sectors are, are
0: coming back? I mean, furniture got hammered uh, once
1: the recession came in, and carpets
0: and so on.
4: Yeah, actually, household spending is increasing, so people are, are are putting are putting more money into their homes again, and that that's seen a big bounce according to the figures from Visa yesterday. At any rate, you're also seeing a bounce in clothes. You're seeing you and, and you're seeing a big bounce as, as David says, in, in the kind of hospitality sector. So they would be the three areas where, where spending seems to have recovered most. But across the whole spectrum, people are spending more money. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it, it is one of those things that, you know, every single report that we've been reading in recent weeks, recent months, have been, you know, the, the line since 2007 has, 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 has been in there somewhere. Because what we are now seeing is we're seeing people spending money at levels not seen since just before the bubble burst.
0: And, David, to help people in their spending uh, this Christmas, um, Retail Excellence Ireland and a number of its members have uh, helpfully launched this gift card, this multi-store mm. gift card uh, called Me To You, mm. which is going to try and take on the one-for-all gift card that has been in the market now for a number of years and has been very successful. Tell us a little bit about that. It's about You've about 18 members, as I understand it, along with Retail Excellence Ireland, along with yourself as a shareholder, and you're backing this business. And those members are putting, giving you the guts of
1: €2 million Euro to promote this. That's correct, yeah. So this idea came from our member council, which is 80 CEOs at different retailers. Um, we, we went to them and asked them what the issue of the day was 18 months ago. And I suppose there was um, monumental, I suppose, disappointment with, with commissions that remain in the marketplace with other open-loop gift cards. Um, So we we set off and and established a gift card company. Um, So initially we raised close to a million euros in marketing contributions from some of the brands. For that they get profiled, but they also get a better rate, they get a better commission. Um, And then as we did that and consulted with members, a number of members asked, could they invest in the company? So we we got Grant Thornton to issue an investment prospectus to all members and yet 18 um, individuals um, would have contributed close to a million euros in the company. So we're we're excited. We're, We're actively selling the card today through Topaz outlets around the country. We have a corporate sales team up in Baggett Street selling to corporates. We're delighted with the BIK increase, which is another big positive coming into Christmas this year. We see a lot of wealthy companies wanting to distribute a BIK benefit to staff up to the new 500 euro maximum, which is great. Um, it was previously
0: 250.
1: It was previously euro, and that's 250. That's a tax exempt. Uh, exactly. It's event. a one off non cash gift right. to PEY. Is, is that
0: going to be? in in time for this Christmas? Because the, the understanding was it would be January 1st next year before it would come. I, I understand
1: pickable. that it will be um, retrospectively implemented from the 22nd of October. Right. Yes. Yeah, okay. so which is a positive development. I think, look, why introduce a measure and, and miss the opportunity, you know? It is um, cl- close to um, cost neutral to the state. Obviously, the enhanced spend that's, on, mm. that's given to the employee, the government, the state recoups the VAT. So it, it just makes sense for everyone. So, I mean, Conor, you
0: were saying that pay hasn't been restored, but maybe this is a way for employers to give something back to their employees without incurring, you know, PSI costs and so forth.
4: Yeah, and I, I you know, I'd be very aware. T- I'd be very aware that I'd be congratulating the government for anything that they do, but I think in this level, on this, uh, in this situation, it, this is a very good idea because, as, as as David said, the benefit in kind kicked in after two hundred and fifty euro. So, if you got a voucher f- for more than two hundred and fifty euro, those tax tax implications for both the, the the employee and the employer. Now it's five hundred euro. I think I would encourage all. Small businesses, big and small, to <laughs> reward <your> their <laughs> to to reward their employees for to the you. tune of five hundred euros next this Christmas. And but seriously, and see, it's 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 such a, it's a win win. Companies win because they boost uh, morale for their staff. The taxman wins because people have more money to spend, so that generates greater greater VAT returns. And obviously, the individual consumers win because they get uh, they get to spend more money and they get to spend it in a kind of guilt free environment.
0: Yeah, David, we had the announcement recently that Arnest is going to be taken over by Selfridges. Arnotts is the oldest and biggest department store in the country. I, I presume you welcome that. And I mean, what's that going to mean in the long term for
1: shopping in Dublin? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's welcome news. It, it's following a trend which we're seeing across the world, which is mass con- consolidation of all retail sectors. So if you look at the States, department stores, pharmacy, consumer electronics, books, fashion, three brands or less own 70% of those markets. And the, the same is happening here. So in the context of department stores, obviously, we're seeing Selfridges increase their market share now. It's it's a welcome development. Arns potentially could have gone the way of Cleary's some years ago, but their their management team did a phenomenal job. Ray Hernan, their leader, their CEO, who's now um, retired from the company, did a phenomenal job. So Selfridges are a serious retailer. They understand retail and um, they'll bring huge added value to that business. How did we how did we come to lose Cleary's? Well, obviously demand and consumer issues around its pertinence and relevance to Irish consumers was at the fore, but the manner in which it was closed was pretty despicable. Um, the company that um, did that was not a retailer. It was a, a venture capital company that really had nobody at the centre of it. It didn't certainly give much of a down, about the staff, the people, the consumers, and um, it was a bleak day for
4: retail. It was, but I actually think the answer answer to your first question is much simpler. How did we lose Cleary's? We lost Cleary's because people didn't shop there. And in the immediate aftermath of the closure, I I spoke to an awful lot of people about Cleary's and and everyone was bemoaning its closure. And when I asked them, when was the last time you went through the doors? And the answer was, oh God, I haven't shopped in Cleary's for years. So people liked the notion of Cleary's, but they never went in there. Um, And I think Arnott's, to its credit, has successfully reinvented itself over and over and over and over again because you'll remember, Kieran, there was a few few years back when it looked like the writing was on the wall for for, for it after the disastrous Northern Quarter thing collapsed. Property development, yeah. And that was all down to property development but it didn't bring them to, you know, it it really damaged the company but they came back and they'll come back again and what what they offer is they offer... A, a proposition to consumers that consumers want, and, and I give you
0: had the opportunity to work there. And for a I day say this as an employee
4: of Arnott's for one glorious day, a couple a couple of years back for a feature I did for the magazine. Um, and uh, you do get to see firsthand. And when I spoke to people after the fact about Arnott's, everybody had a nice word to say about that retailer. And I think that's very unusual in, in, in an Irish context. People had nice things to say about Cleary's when it closed, but they just never went into the shop. And I think that was the problem. And of course, David says the manner in which the staff were treated was just appalling, and you'd have to condemn that on every single level. But I think Irish consumers, Dublin consumers, have questions to answer about their own about their own loyalties. If they didn't shop in the shop, it was inevitable the shop would close. David, what's
0: the REI view on sales, retail sales for two thousand and sixteen?
1: Good, yeah. As Connor said, um, a little bit more discretionary income coming with the USC um, being reduced. So w- we see a couple of sectors growing exponentially. We see tech going through the roof. Um, kids are getting. Younger, sooner, and uh, sorry, are getting older sooner, and and you know instead of the conventional toy that Santa might bring them at Christmas, it's laptops and tablets and all the rest of it. Not my house. Menswear <laughs> is going through the roof, it's kind of, uh, and it's seriously an awful lot to do with Conor McGregor. Um, men are understanding style and want to this generation of young young men um, want to invest in their their, their luck uh, and so they're all getting their beards trimmed and they're getting their waistcoats on so that's huge. We see our jewellery members talking about a revision back to bespoke handcrafted jewellery so maybe potentially away from some of the branded stuff back to bespoke you know, jewellery pieces that a bit of love and attention and craftsmanship have gone into um, but the big news and the big opportunity for Irish consumers is Black Friday's coming on the 27th of uh, November we're going to see massive sales across the country. We've been preparing our smaller members to... Just explain
0: to listeners
1: what Black Friday yeah, is. Yeah, well, it, it's a U.S. It's a US Thanksgiving um, retail event, consumer event, where yeah. it's it's basically, it's the January sales in November. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a weekend of deep discount. Um, the retailers hate it. Um, obviously, don't don't to be selling product at a discount before Christmas, but it's here, and it's here to stay. I know to an interest that Asda have decided to opt out of it this Christmas over in the UK, so we'll be interested to see what ne- negative impact, if any, that has on their business, but we're aware that all the department stores and, and all the consumer electronic guys, the Harvey Normans and the rest of them are all preparing massive big discounts for that weekend.
0: Connor, you have a reputation for value um, through your uh, price watch pages in, in the newspaper. Uh, will you be waiting for the January sales as opposed to splashing out
4: pre-Christmas. Um, yeah, I will. And um, the, uh, the whole notion of Black Friday wearies me. Uh, I have to say, if you'd said three or four years ago that Irish people would be hopping on board that particular bandwagon, I would have said you're absolutely crazy. But now it appears that it is reality. And to be perfectly honest, there's huge savings. I hate to say it, but there's huge savings that will be made over that particular weekend. As you know, it's, it, it historically it, it it comes from the United States, and it was the Friday after Thanksgiving when Americans confined to their homes for 24 long hours couldn't resist the urge to splurge on on the day after Thanksgiving. And now we've bought into that as well. Uh, part of me is saddened by that notion, but I guess it's just a, a, the reality and there's hardly anything that we do. And we'll talk about Black Friday for ages and then after that it'll all be about Black Monday. I think Black Monday so, is... Cyber Monday, yeah. Cyber Monday, sorry, mm-hmm. that. And that's the first Monday in December. The following Monday. Oh, it's the following Monday. Yeah, Brilliant.
1: It's well, sure. just a mad weekend, the Friday to the Monday. But the most important date in the calendar in the run-up to Christmas... Is the
4: 25th of December when Santa Claus comes?
1: No, no, no. It's the 5th of December, which is Small Business Saturday. So we launched it last year with the shock and... It's a day to try and just get people to, to spend local and spend with more smaller independent stores. Um, the stats would tell you that every euro spent in a local um, retail environment is worth about four in terms of secondary tertiary benefits. So, um, look, there's lots of big brands out there and many of them are members of ours. But for that one day, we'd, we'd really hope that you support small and local businesses.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. That's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Alan Dukes, Arthur Beasley, David Fitzsimons, and Connor Pope. Shenado Shape produced the show with JJ Vernon as the sound engineer. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.